Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Uh, I've had a little bit of a strange new year. Um, this past week, I literally broke my toe. Yeah, doing something dumb. I was trying to kick a ball. Not a cool story. Kick the ground instead. <laughs> toe broke. Uh, it started off, though, in January. The day before my birthday, I had a shelf fall, uh, hit me in the back of the head, got a gnarly concussion. Um, about a month later, I'm feeling a little bit better playing basketball, and then Roland decides to punch me. Um, no, he didn't do that. Break my nose, and then all the concussion stuff came back. And so... I've been in this strange season where my head has not been right in literally two months. Um, Two months where, like, to think, to write, to focus, noise, sounds, lights, all those things were so painful that I've had to take some time. And there was about a week where three days I'm sitting quietly in a dark room for entire days trying to get my head straight. Like the rhythms and the pace of my life were completely interrupted. I mean, I love to get after it, go, you know, fill my calendar, do stuff, and now I can't do anything at all. And in that quiet, dark space, I began to evaluate the rhythms of my life and what they were producing in my life. And I asked and wrestled with this question, are the rhythms of my life producing the kind of person I long to be? It's amazing when you have dedicated silence that all the stuff gurgles up and you begin to think about like, okay, what is, I'm 38, what does Ryan at 48 look like? What does Ryan at 58 look like? And I want to visit that Ryan and and are the rhythms of my life right now producing the type of 48 or 58 year old I long to be? And then I ask this question, are the rhythms of my life producing or forming the life of Christ in me? Like, it's so easy to get caught up in just doing and the pace of life that we don't often stop to evaluate the rhythms of our life. And the truth is, our lives are not a product of our dreams, our desires, our ambitions. We wish they were. However, our lives are a product of the very rhythms and habits we have embraced. James Clear, in his New York Times bestselling book, Atomic Habits, writes this. Habits are compound interest of self-improvement. The same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them. They seem to make very little difference on any given day, yet the impact they deliver over the months and the years can be enormous. It is only when looking back two, five, or perhaps ten years later that the value of good habits and the cost of bad ones becomes strikingly apparent. And so let me ask you, you didn't have three days in the dark to evaluate, but we're kind of in the dark. Are the rhythms of your life producing the kind of person you fundamentally long to be? The kind of woman or man you hope to be? Are the rhythms of your life producing the kind of friend that you want to be? Or the kind of spouse that you want to be, or the kind of parent that you long to be. 
Now, the interesting part about our rhythms, or perhaps the problem with our rhythms, is it's not just our rhythms. We have rhythms in our world. Our world has a rhythm, has a cadence, has a pace to it, doesn't it? The Silicon Valley has a rhythm, and, and if we're not thoughtful about it, isn't it true? We just get caught up in that rhythm, the Silicon Valley rhythm, the pace. And for those who have moved from out of the area, you're like, yeah, the Silicon Valley has a rhythm. And then you get into it and you forget about it until you go to Santa Cruz. And you're like, oh, everybody just hangs out in, at coffee shops. That's weird. That's the Santa Cruz rhythm. I grew up there. Explain some things for some of you. So what is the rhythm of the Silicon Valley? Because I think we have to first deconstruct our uh, fishbowl that we're living in before we begin to reconstruct uh, sacred rhythms. Uh, the rhythm of the Silicon Valley fundamentally here in the, is success at any cost. The God of this valley is success. Every startup's aim isn't to just kind of like eat by. They want to be the next Google, the next Facebook, the next whatever, Apple. It's success. And you come here to be successful and you work long hours. You do whatever it takes and you sacrifice your lives on the altar of success. And parents do this with their kids. They move to this area. They move to that area. They, they try whatever it takes to get their kids in the right sports at the right school so that they'll be successful and Here's what this rhythm produces, however. It produces, quote, external success at the expense of significance. And we keep this pace up, and what happens, because we're running so fast, then the rhythm becomes busyness is a badge of honor. Isn't it funny, like when you ask people, whether you're a college student, whether you're, you know, a parent or, a, you know... Um, in the work world, wherever you're at, how are you doing? Everybody answers the same way here. Busy. Some of you already answered that before I could get there, right? How are you doing? Busy. If it's a good day, busy. Bad day, busy, right? And if you're a Christian and you want to be kind of Christianese, you would say it this way, busy but good, right? You're like, ah, oh, how are you doing? Busy, because busyness is then the rhythm which we think we're actually living a productive and good life. No, no, no. Here's what busyness does. Busyness leaves us with lives that overwhelmed, but yet are underfulfilled, where we just move in at such a fast pace. Now, think about this. For many, sitting in a dark room for three days by yourself would be hell on earth, and the reason is, is your soul hasn't caught up to your life, and we keep ourselves busy because we don't want to deal with the internal world. And you run from one thing to the next, chasing this elusive carrot because there's an aching and a longing, and you're not exactly sure how to fulfill that, and you're afraid of what will happen if you stop. The ultimate goal of this rhythm is financial freedom. The aim of the Silicon Valley is like this, this like, I want to be financially independent. I, I want to be free to be able to choose and do whatever I want to do. And so I'm going to embrace a rhythm of life I never would choose for myself. So that in the long run, one day, I'll be able to do whatever I choose. Parents use this logic with kids. I want to provide for my kids a better life 
than they had, than I had. I want, I want to provide for them something I never had. And so you spend their formative years working long hours and being absent. Now, there's a reason they call them formative years. And if you're not there to help form those years, who will? Financial freedom, the goal, the price tag, however, is more money, yet actually less peace. And we get caught up in this rhythm, and then Jesus speaks into this and invites us to reconsider our rhythms. He says this in John 10.10, The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. There are rhythms and a way of the world that, that is designed to kill the joy in you. Still life from you, keep you from flourishing. But notice what he says, I have come. I don't know what you think of Jesus or why he came. But he clarifies it right here. I have come that they may have life. And life to the very full. Some of your translations say abundant life. Maybe another good translation is life overflowing. Like Jesus showed up on the planet that you would have life. Like flowing, overflowing, deeply satisfying life. Could it be that the rhythms of your life are part of the reason that is sucking the life from you? Could it be that the rhythms of your life are killing the joy in your life? Destroying your flourishing so I think a better question to ask is not just are the rhythms of my life producing the kind of person I long to be, but a better question is what are the rhythms? What are the rhythms that actually produce the life of Christ in me? If it's true that in Christ is life and life that is flourishing and to the full, then I want to know what are the sacred rhythms that will begin to produce that type of life in me? What are the rhythms that will produce the kind of person I long to become? It's fascinating. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens up with the Beatitudes. We began it all the way back in December in our Bless Up series. The Beatitudes are this. Is Jesus painting the picture of who is truly flourishing in life? See, we define flourishing in so many different ways, but he's going, no. The people who are anchored, who are experiencing joy and life and peace, I'm going to paint this picture, and it's not who you think. And then he shifts then to salt and light and talking about flourishing people have an impact and make a significance in this world. They're like salt that just, you know, brings such flavor to the world around. They're like light that just brings such illumination and, and bring life. And that's what a flourishing life looks like. And then we begin to ask, well, how do we actually live that out? And we talk through the controversial Jesus where he's saying, no, there's this fundamental heart change where there's this desire to know God and love him. And he changes us from the inside out so that our responses aren't just religious or kind of somehow modifying our behavior from the outside and just form and function, but just a true heart desire for the things of God to the point where we closed to the point where you would be able and I'd be able to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us. Like the people who hate you, you would bring them before God. 
And if you've been tracking along with us as we're going through, you should be asking this question. How? How does that happen? How does the life of Christ get formed in me? How do I experience that internal transformation that then bursts forth into life all around me where I'm actually salt and light in the world around me? And this is where Jesus brings us next in the Sermon on the Mount and to this idea of sacred rhythms. Let me give you a definition for sacred rhythms. Sacred rhythms are spiritual practices If you've been around the church in a while, some of you know it or understand it as spiritual disciplines that cultivate the life of Christ in a follower of Jesus. They are spiritual practices, not a spiritual pill. One of the reasons some of you are frustrated in your walk with Jesus is you want the genie God that you take this pill and your life has changed. And he says there are practices because you have learned a form of living and you've stepped into a new life and now you need to learn a new way to live. When I got married, I stepped into a new life fundamentally, but I did not know how to be a married man. It has taken me the last 16 years and it'll take me another 16, 30 years to learn how to be a married man. There are practices connected to it. It's the already not yet reality of you. There are spiritual practices in your life that have this multiplying effect that when you put them into practice little by little, you go like, well, I prayed once and I didn't see anything. Or I read my Bible once and now, as you do it little by little, it cultivates the life of Christ in you so that your response is not your natural Where the Apostle Paul would say the fruit of the Spirit, the result is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I think I missed one. Always do. And that's your response. Like, man, my response when someone's lashing out is to love. My response when it would be easier to just be a jerk is to be kind. Like I'm walking through life and no matter what the circumstance, my response is joy. I have a supernatural peace, even though the storms of life are all around me. Don't you want to live that kind of life? And he says, how that gets formed in you is part is taking part of this active process with God by which he transforms us through these practices. Dallas Willard says it this way. The path of spiritual growth and the riches of Christ is not a passive one. It's not a pill. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. You have never seen people more active than those who have been set on fire by the grace of God. The disciplines of the spiritual life are simply practices that prove to be effectual in enabling us to increase in the grace of God in our lives. And so Jesus shifts our attention in the Sermon on the Mount to these spiritual practices, these sacred rhythms that produce the flourishing life in us. If you got your Bibles, if you'd open them up to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. If you don't, it'll be on the screen or it's in your notes. Let's dive in. Jesus begins this way. Be careful. Not a great way to begin. Watch out. Pay attention. Because Inherent in sacred rhythms, there's a temptation that's going to draw us into this religious conformity. 
rather than a dynamic intimacy with God. And so he's going to say, watch out. This is going to lay the groundwork. This is going to lay the foundation for where we're going. What are we watching out? Not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward, or you can write underneath that word, recognition from your Father in heaven. Right up at the start, Jesus begins with a warning because he knows our natural temptation just as humans. He says, be careful and watch out. As you begin to dive into this, you need to pay attention because if if you don't pay attention to this, you're going to think you're doing the right thing and it's just going to be religious conformity, but your heart will not be transformed. My uh, drum instructor growing up, he used to tell me this. He said, Ryan, practice doesn't make perfect. You remember hearing that? Practice makes perfect. Practice makes perfect. He said, that's a lie. Perfect practice makes perfect. Like your technique matters. And any one of us who's coached little kids know that. You know, we're trying to coach a kid. He's shooting a ball like this. Practice does not make perfect. He's just doing this. Perfect practice or proper technique, proper form. Here's what Jesus is saying right from the uh, gate. Watch your form. Well, what are we to watch in our form? Not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Here's what Jesus is saying. Why you do what you do is just as important as what you do. Your motive matters. And there's this subtle tendency with sacred rhythms to move them into something that, like, takes away the power because now it's a performance for others. I'm doing this so you think better of me. Have you ever been praying, maybe like in a small group or something like this, and someone begins a prayer, and I don't mean to point anybody out, but, but this happens at times, and you're going like, they're using these big words, or maybe they change their language. you ever seen this? Lord God. <laughs> Jesus. In the mighty and holy and sanctified name of Jesus. Yeah, you ever seen this? I mean, preachers do this sometimes too. And you're like, like when you were talking to me, you weren't talking like that. And then all of a sudden you start talking. We're going to talk about prayer next week, so that will be great. But that wasn't to God. That was for everyone else to think how spiritual they were. And he says, watch out. Watch out because if you let your heart go down that road, you'll turn what was designed to develop intimacy into something that's just being legalistic or for the approval of others. He goes on to help us understand or unpack this. Notice what he says. He says, if you do, if you live for the applause of people, if you're you're just allowing your good deeds or your good stuff for the applause of others, um, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Like, it's all about this relationship with God. It's all about intimacy with Him. He says, if you take this and do it for other people, it turns into religious piety instead of relational intimacy. And some of you are wrestling with this. Like, 
Ingram, didn't Jesus just say, like, salt and light, let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds? Aren't we supposed to do things public? Yes. But finish the verse. So that they will, what? Glorify your Father in heaven. And here he says, don't do your religious or righteous good deeds to what? To be seen by men. The why matters. We always get to the heart issue. See, my, um, my, my relationship with my wife is a deeply, like, wonderful, incredible um, relationship, right? Now, just imagine, like, all healthy marriages have these great rhythms, a part of it. We have a date day that we just hang out on Fridays. It's awesome. Uh, maybe if you're in a great relationship, you write notes or send flowers, just imagine if, um, if the only time I gave my wife flowers was on Sunday at church for everybody else to see. Now, some of you would go like, oh, man, what a great romantic. Oh, we have the most romantic pastor, right? And you're like, and you're kind of hitting your own guy and you're going like, you need to do that. And go, hey, what a great guy. You know what my wife would say? What a jerk. Because that wasn't for me, that was for them. This is what Jesus is saying here. See, when we strip these practices of the relational intimacy, they become hollow and powerless, and they become a form of religious duty and function that no longer are forming our lives in Christ. Notice he said, your Father in heaven will recognize you. See, some of you don't know this, but you have a heavenly father who just loves you. He's wild about you. My kids, when they do something right, I just can't wait to put my arm around them and just go, way to go. You're doing a great job. Like, you didn't yell at your sister. That was amazing. We've been working on that. Way to encourage. Way to choose the right thing, even though it's hard. Like, I'm so proud of you. And that's just me as an earthly dad. And you have the heavenly father, who is the God of the how much more, who's going alongside you, like, just eager. He's just eager, going like, man, I just want to reward you. I want to recognize you. I want to put my arm around you. And if you're living for the applause of people, you will never get to hear the tender voice of God, saying, good job. And so with that warning, we move into our first sacred rhythm. And the first rhythm that Jesus invites us to, invites us into, chances are you've actually never thought of as a sacred rhythm. It, it might even just be like, what? Really? I, this is just something that I think it's nice to do, good to do, but I just never really thought of it and connected it to my spirituality. And Jesus is going to invite us into the sacred rhythm of generosity. Notice what he says. So when you give to the needy, circle the word when, we'll get to that. Do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. It's the Pharisees. They, they were great about making sure everybody knew what they did. The Pharisee was all about prominence, reputation. 
living for the applause of people, wanting to be the most important person in the village or in the town, wanting to have the seat of honor and living in that way. And so they would make sure they would do good deeds, but they'd make sure they'd get a crowd first. Ring the bell. Come on. Ring the bell. Man, if you didn't see it, let me tell you about it. It says, do not... when." as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the street, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give, circle the word when again, you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. The issue here is really has to do with hypocrisy. The issue here has to do with your heart. That word hypocrisy that Jesus um, uses is, is the word from the Greek that's talking about actors in a play. They would put on a mask in, in, um, and they would change their voice to play different people throughout the play. That's what this word hypocrite means. He's saying... Don't live your life in such a way that you put on a mask before others to hope they see someone that you're not. I mean, I, I know that's kind of a hard thing to say because all of us are on Instagram and we're putting a filter on everything and posing out every single element of our lives. And like, it was the worst day of my life, but I'm going to make this little magical shot so that everyone thinks it was the best party ever. And he says... When you begin to practice some of these sacred rhythms, do them in secret. Not for the applause of people. Why? Because secrecy safeguards us against hypocrisy. Secrecy is, is, is an antidote. When, when I go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, but I'm going to pray in secret. I'm going to read my Bible, but I'm not going to pronounce it. When I give to the needy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it in such a way that, that the only one who can get glory is God. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you, will recognize you. He wants to come alongside you and just say, man, good job. The rhythm of generosity. Notice I had you circle the word when, not if. Jesus, in these sacred rhythms, does not command us to do them. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about fasting. And he doesn't say, pray. And if you don't pray, it's a sin. It's not what he says. But he says when, with the assumption that his followers are doing this, that this is just simply a part of the overflow life. So as we think about these sacred rhythms, it's important for us to know that these are not commands to be obeyed, but wisdom to be embraced. And right there, that's some freedom for some of you who grew up in the church, and you're like, I didn't read my Bible this morning. I showed up to church, and I'm, I'm going to go to hell. That's not, not reading your Bible, it's not sin. It's just not wise. Right? If I want to cultivate a deep, intimate relationship with my wife, having a great conversation, spending time with her is what I need to do. And be interested in what she's interested in. When I don't do that, that's not sin. It's just not wise. It will not produce the life I long for and the relationship I hope to have. That brings so much freedom, but also a grand invitation into God's 
word and into these sacred rhythms. They're not laws to be obeyed, but wisdom to be applied. But there seems to be this expectation. This is what followers of Jesus do. And so I want to spend the rest of our time talking about practically the rhythm of generosity. How do we live this out? How how do we actually make this into a rhythm? Because I think for many of us, we would imagine that we're generous people. I think most Americans, we'd ask most Americans, are you generous? And they would answer, yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, the stats tell us that 44.8% of Americans give nothing. So even though most people would identify as generous, we don't practice it as generosity. What we think about is that one time we were actually generous. Like, yeah, man, I helped this homeless guy one point, or I you know, gave here. And we live out our generosity anecdotically instead of systematically. This is a rhythm to embrace. This isn't just some sporadic, I did this one time. So how do we begin to live this out? Well, there is this practice that was true in Jesus' day and true in ours is a rhythm that actually happened in their day. So when Jesus is talking about when you give to the needy, there's already some assumptions that have already taken place in the followers of Jesus' life, that they're living and walking in this way. And the practice was known as the tithe. And some of you have heard about it. Most of you probably don't even know what that is. We're going to talk about that. But the tithe was the part of the practice that was habitual in the life of everyday followers of Jesus, in the life of the Jewish people, that they practice. And then out of the overflow of their heart, when they came across a needy person, then in that moment, they were being generous. And the problem is, most of us don't even know what a tithe is. And some of you are like, well, I think I know what a tithe is. I don't know. They say sometimes up front, tithe and offering. But, but what is that all about? And so what I want to do is tell you, like, why tithing's a big deal? Why is it important to God? What it actually is, how to do it, and why we can't afford not to. And for some, you might be exactly where my daughter was. I was talking to her about this a few weeks ago. My daughter is like this incredible babysitting entrepreneur, 14 years old, like killing it, man. I mean, seriously, her bank account, I'm like, dang, girl, 14? I had no idea, 14-year-old. And I was asking her, like, hey, what are you planning to do with all that money? You know what her answer was? Saving for college. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) And then I was talking to her about tithing. I'm just talking about how we give to God first, and we're going to cover this. And you know her response was just natural and normal. She's like, yeah, I know, we're supposed to give to God. And what I realized that I've done with my kids in their early age is I've really taught them what God says. And in this season, as they're in their teenage seasons, it's incredibly important to teach them why God says it. When we get disconnected from the why, it just turns into this, these duties and these functions or obligations. When we get back to the why, we understand God's heart and desire for us. And that it's actually for our good, not his. And so what is the tithe all about? Let's talk about this and this rhythm of tithing. Tithing trains our hearts to trust God. It is the training mechanism upon which God has implemented for our hearts to learn to trust God little by little. Jesus, a little bit later on in the Sermon on the Mount, would say this. Do not store up for yourself treasure on earth. 
where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. He's saying you want to invest eternally, not temporally. Okay, well, why? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the reason this is a big deal to God isn't because he needs your money. He's God. He doesn't need your money. We don't need your money. Actually, we've walked by faith as well. We trust God in the process. I know that God will take care of us. God doesn't want your money, but God does want your heart. He says, where your treasure is, whatever you treasure, whatever you value, has your heart. He's saying there's this invisible string attached to your bank account, and whatever you give to, that's like what your heart is connected to. For some, like, there's some things like, I wish I just loved the poor more. Give to the poor. Like, like get involved with a soup kitchen, and you'll find as you begin to give your money there, your heart will follow. Wherever your money goes, your heart follows. It, it just happens that way. And, and if you want to see God change your heart, you got to begin to redirect your money. He says it this way in Luke 16.10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Notice that the little in God's economy is your money. And he wants, just like a shrewd investor, he wants to know, are you trustworthy with the little that I give you? Because I want to use your life with significance and impact. And then he says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus knows the chief competitor between him and you is not the devil, but your finances. He says tithing is this training mechanism that allows us to learn to trust God and take these little steps and find that he is trustworthy. Well, what is the tithe? Tithe literally means a tenth. In Leviticus 27.30, it says, A tithe of everything from the land, a tenth of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Like, the tithe is actually returning to God 10% of all you make. And listen, when we tithe, it is not being generous. It is simply returning. We just go, okay, I have 100% of this. I'm going to, you know, I make, let's just say $100. Okay, God, I'm going to tithe. I'm going to trust that you can provide for me. And so I'm going to give 10% back to you. And we kind of think, well, what a good boy am I? I'm like, no, you're just being obedient. You're just kind of following him. It's just simply returning to him what's already his. And some of you are like, well, that's Old Testament, right? And what about the New Testament? I'm so glad you asked. Jesus actually affirms the tithe in Matthew 23, 23. And we see this whole idea of actually not just percentage giving, which the Old Testament talked about, but proportional giving in the New Testament, where it's like, All that we have is God's, and we just begin to entrust to him and say, God, I'm a steward. I'm a steward of all you've given, so you just tell me what to do with it. Instead of living with our stuff with tight grips, we begin to open them up. See, the issue isn't whether you have stuff or not. It's whether stuff has you. 
He wants to know, man, I can entrust a lot to you so that you can be used by me. And when we like are holding it tightly, it has a tight grip on us. And for some of you followers of Jesus, you just need to hear this. In the church, we're kind of weird about our, our like possessions, right? If you get a nice car, you got to explain, I got a deal on it, you know, yeah, have a nice vacation. We saved up for years, right? Um, paid all in points. God doesn't care if you have stuff. But God cares deeply if stuff has you. God cares deeply that we begin to entrust all that we have, all that we are to him, and that we then begin to understand ourselves not as owner but as steward. Uh, Irenaeus, a church father, lived around 130 A.D. to 202, says this, The Jews were constrained to a regular payment of tithes. This, this habitual structure. Then he goes on, Christians who have liberty assign all their possessions to the Lord, bestowing freely not the lesser portion of their property, since they have hope of greater things. As followers of Jesus, whose lives have been redeemed, who we get to experience the blessing and the wonder of being fully forgiven, adopted sons and daughters, we got every spiritual blessing in, as ours in Christ. We just go, man... My life's just an offering to you. My stuff is an offering to you. I'm entrusted uh, by it, and God, show me how you want me to steward it. Do you know that only 2.7% of Americans give 10% of their income away? 13.9% give less than 2% away? Um, and there's this great book called The Paradox of Generosity. It's where uh, a Notre Dame professor of sociology did all this study and research and there's actually this correlation of giving 10% or more and your overall well-being, um, happiness, purpose in life, not experiencing uh, depression as much. Like, and so he notes this, uh, those Americans who give away money, and more specifically, those who give away at least 10% of their income are happier than those who don't. And yet 97% of Americans are living in a scarcity mindset, and I have to get mine, I have to get mine. And this invitation of God is going like, literally, it's for your good. I actually want to bless you and flourish you, not take away from you. Well, how do we do this? Okay, tithing trains our heart to trust God. Tithe literally means a tenth. We are to give God first. We are to give to God first. Proverbs 3, 9, 10 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all the crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. This whole idea of first fruits, it does not take faith to give to God last. It takes faith and trust to say, I'm going to entrust the first 10%. And some of you are like, I can't do 10%. Great, start with 1%. Start with 2%. And some of you are like, Ingram, I think you're just teaching this to get more giving here. No. And if that's the case, give somewhere else. Give to Compassion International. Give to World Vision. Give to Charity Water. Find an organization that's doing incredible good and give there. I do believe we are to give to the house of God where you are being spiritually fed first. But if there's any like hinge of like, man, Ingram's just here to somehow bump the offering. Look, we're doing fine. Look at the offering in the bulletin. We're doing fine. God's taking care of us. This is about you and your heart. God, antidote 
for entitlement and greed, his pathway to experiencing financial peace, which is way better than financial freedom, by the way, is found in the principle of first fruit, where we say, okay, the first portion of what comes in is going to go to you. Like, I'm just designating it. It's not mine, it's yours. I'm not actually being generous, I'm just returning and honoring to you. And so here's our normative way that we actually go about this. Consume what I make, save if I can, give if there's anything left. That's just the norm. And in the Silicon Valley, is there anything left? No. First Fruits tells us, give the first 10%. Save second, and then live on the rest. Where you say, okay, God, I'm going to write at the front. I get my paycheck, I'm going to write a check. I'm going to have it withdrawn, and I'm going to give here first. Then I'm going to save, and then I'm going to live on the rest. Did you know the average American lives on 110% of their income? 90% of Americans buy things they cannot afford. 60% do not pay off their credit card debt. And since we got some college students in the room, 80% of college students graduate with credit card debt. Guys, the way we're going about our finances is creating such angst and pain and sucking the life out of you. And Jesus is saying, by the way, your bank document is actually a spiritual document, and this is a spiritual practice where I want to release the grip of greed, consumerism, and change your heart and bring about a whole new life if you'll just trust me with the way I'm calling you to invest here. And some of you are going like, I cannot do that. Not in the Silicon Valley. The reality is you can't afford not to. In fact, this is why God says this. Test me. Test me. You know, this is the only command in the scripture, the only time we see God inviting his people to test him. Because this is such a big deal and it's so hard for us. It's like God saying, I double dog dare you. When my kids have some things that are hard in their life that they're unwilling to let go of, like I'm like just, especially with food. You ever? Some of you have done this as parents with food. Like I've given them amazing food before. I'm like, you're gonna love it, but they've never seen it, right? I'm like, no, I don't want to try it. I'm like, trust me, it's amazing. Like, how can you not like, you know, apple pie? You're going to love it. It looks weird. I've never tried it before. Dude, I promise you, if you don't like it, I'll pay you a billion dollars. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) But as a dad, when we see something that's so good for our kids, and yet they're like holding on to the old, we go like, no, test us, try us, trust us. That's what God's doing here. Like, I have so much good in store that you're missing out because you're clinging to the little you have instead of trusting the God who has it all. He says, test me in this. Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I'll not throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough in it. Let me define what blessing is real quick for us. Blessing, Robert Morris writes, is having supernatural power working for you. A blessed person may or may not be wealthy in the world standard, but they enjoy a quality of life most billionaires would envy. That's blessing. 
Jesus would say it this way, give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Paul would say it this way. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart. This shouldn't be like this spontaneous. Those are moments for that. But there should be this decision making in your heart between you and God. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. There should be no sense of guilt or ought. There shouldn't be sense of like, well, I have to. I'm like, that doesn't honor God. It's the reason we're not doing a second offering going, oh, the past, I feel guilty. No, no. For God loves a cheerful giver. The most generous people I've been around when I'm talking to them, you know their response? I can't believe I get to be a part of this. Like, it is so much fun. In fact, I have a buddy who, who does really well, could retire and he's like, Ryan, do you know why I still work? I'm like, no, tell me. So I can give more. Like my business has done great and I can just coast on it. And, but I want to get more clients, not so I can just pad my retirement. Like it is so much fun to get to be a part of what God's doing. And I just love it. And it just motivates me. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able bless you abundantly. Why? So that in all things, having all that you need, not all that you want, you will abound in every good work. The blessing of God is so you can do and be a part of every good work. Again, Christian Smith, Hillary Davidson, and the Paradox of Generosity, they write, the Americans want to become happier, healthier people who live with greater purpose, suffer less depression, and enjoy more personal growth. Nobody in here wants that. One way they might better accomplish that is to learn to be more generous. The scientific evidence shows clearly that more generous people are doing significantly better in their lives in many important ways. This is why God says, test me on it. The rhythm of generosity begins with the practice of tithing. I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to close. I just want to close with a story of how this worked out in my life one way. I invite the band to come on up. We're going we're gonna to sing a song, Have It All. And I, I want to set that song up as well because this isn't like, hey, you can have it all. God, here, I'm going to open up my wallet and do some of those sort of things. What I want you to do is have a really like, honest moment with God. Where you would evaluate, are the rhythms of my life producing the kind of person I want to be? And if they're not, what is it in your life where you're going, I'm withholding that from God? Where I go like, no, God, you can have this, but not this area. And where in a just confessional way, for some this morning, this is that lordship moment where you go, God, no, you can have it all. I'm yours. I'm just a steward, and I'm entrusted my, this life entrustment. Well, part of the reason we don't trust God is we've never relied on him to the point where we need him. You know that passage, not to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine, right? But you got to trust him beyond your ability 
so that you see the God who is able. Um, we're years and years ago, so we're moving from Georgia to California. We were um, in a really hard spot. I had just had the birth of our second kid, and um, the job that I was working at, they actually ripped us off of two months of pay. Had a mortgage, two kids trying to move across country. And so our plan was we're going to sell this car, Honda Passport. Love the Hondas. And we're going to sell it for $5,000, and that would be enough money for us to pay our mortgage and move across the country. And I got this little tap on the shoulder from God, and both my wife and I did. Hey, you need to give that car to this family in your church. They're not... You know, lower income family, five kids, teenagers, they could really use it. I just remember wrestling with God, going like, God, that's like how we're going to fund this thing. Like, we're, we don't have money. No, you just need to give it to him. So I remember going over, and his name was Dell, and I said, hey, Dell, God's called us to give you this car. He's like, no, no, we couldn't do that. I said, that's fine. You just take that up with God. It's not me. I didn't, it wasn't my choice. <laughs> give him the car, and days away from moving, our bank account maybe has like $100 in it. Not really sure how we're going to afford anything. It's like going like, it's just like that walking by faith, trusting, okay, God, you, you said it. I don't know how it's going to work out, and there's no way that we could figure it out. And I get this knock on the door, and a courier, I never had a courier come to my he hands me this envelope, and I have to sign for it. And I open it up, and there's a guy I met once. I said, hey, I heard you're moving out of the area. Really sad to see you go. Thought you could use a little bit of moving around money. Check for $5,000. Test me, guys, on this, God. You have a good heavenly Father who loves you and wants the best for you. He wants to provide for you to show, like, not that you would trust in your ability, but you would just go, man, I got the God who is able. And when you trust him with the little stuff, then he gives you, the, like, the true richest stuff where you get to have this spiritual impact and, like, leave a legacy that lasts. When we begin to lean into that, trust me on this.